Hello, my name is Father Edward Looney, and you're listening to the podcast, How They Love Mary, a podcast that I hope will either be the beginning or the deepening of your Marian devotion. When it comes to the Blessed Virgin Mary, there are lots of different sacramentals. We wear the sacramentals like the scapular or the miraculous medal. We pray the rosary. The rosary beads are a sacramental. There are lots of different sacramentals in our Catholic faith. Tan Books has a wonderful new resource that is available called the Compendium of Sacramentals. It's written and compiled by Sean McAfee, and I'm very delighted to be having this conversation today. Sean is a convert to the Catholic faith. He's a lay Dominican, is the founder and editor of EpicPew.com, and writes for numerous Catholic publications and resources, including the National Catholic Register. He lives in New Orleans, Louisiana, with his wife, Jessica, and their six children. So thanks so much, Sean, for being with me today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me on. And by the way, I'm a huge fan of your writings, too, including your Christmas stories children's book. Oh, man. Uh, my kids have had that for, yeah, kids got that last year. Oh, and, wow. Uh, That's I just, great. I get any children's book anytime I can, no matter what time of year, no matter what the subject. So thank you for doing that. Oh, that's beautiful. That's uh, Breakfast in Bethlehem. And then I wrote a new little story called Flowers from the Shepherd Boy, which was actually inspired by, I guess you could call it a sacramental, which would be uh, a statue. I I bought a statue a long, long time ago of a little shepherd boy giving flowers to Mary. And I thought it was so cute and I wanted to write a story about it. So I did. So there you have it. Well, well, that's wonderful. Great to hear. And, you know, you're, You live down in New Orleans, and, uh, you know, there's lots of holy places down there. So, you know, I don't know what exactly we call sacramentals. Like, I know what sacramentals are, obviously. I'm a priest. I bless sacramentals, etc. But, but like, I'm just thinking about New Orleans and how, you know, there's Our Lady of Prompt Sucker down there. I'm thinking about Blessed Francis Xavier Silos and the shrine there. So those are kind of like devotional places, which I'm sure have sacramentals. Wouldn't that be true? Yeah, 100%. I mean, you, you you nailed it. The third type of sacraments, so sacramentals fall into three general categories, according to how the Church defines them these days, and that's blessings, which you said you do because you're a priest, and actually anybody can bless, not just anything, um, but they can they can bless according to their authority, like we bless our meals, we bless our children. Um, and then we have exorcisms, which I don't perform. I'll let you tell me all about those. <laughs> and then we have uh, items or devotions of piety, and you nailed it. You know, Our Lady of Prompt Sucker, we have, you can have a devotion to her. But there are also structured devotions that the Church has approved, like the Mysteries of the Rosary and so on. Yeah, and, you know, if I'm not mistaken, down there in the cathedral in New Orleans, which is beautiful, and anytime you watch a Saints game and they're doing B-roll footage for uh, the football, you know, audience, they often will have that iconic cathedral down there. But isn't there like a saint or a blessed, someone on the way to sainthood, maybe, uh, I I forget the name, maybe Henrietta or somebody. Do you know who I'm talking about? Man, you're really smart. Yes, it's uh, Henriette DeVille, or uh, DeLille, Um, and she's included uh, by the, the, uh, excuse me, our bishop, our archbishop, Amond. Every church for every uh, every mass at the very beginning, we pray a family prayer, and it ends with a supplication for her intercession. That's Mother Henriette DeLille. And do you know anything about her? So was she a religious sister? Like, why is she holy? Why should she be a saint? Well, actually, she was one of the first influential colored Catholics. If you look at pictures of her, 
you know, you might it might be difficult to discern that she's that she's colored, but she was considered colored because she was a, a mix of Cree and African American. I believe there might have been some Caucasian there too, um, but she she took care of and helped baptize dozens and dozens of children in an orphanage, um, catechized them and put them into either good homes or you know they went on to accomplish really great things. She, she's just an influential figure, some in the the nineteenth century, and um, her her impact is seen all around town in the in the orphanages and schools. So let's talk a little bit about sacramentals. This is a compendium of sacramentals. You've written it. You've compiled it. Uh, what's the most surprising thing maybe you learned in your research? I'm sure you had to put in some time researching this book. So uh, what, what's yeah. one of your big takeaways from what you put in? Well, I like that they say written and compiled, and I'm not sure what they mean about compiled, but I, d- I definitely wrote everything in there and then approved all the uh, the wonderful imagery that, that adorns the book. Um, uh, for me, you know, there were a lot of uh, little light bulb moments, uh, but my favorite is to learn just how ancient a lot of our physical sacramentals are, or let's say a lot of our devotionals are. You know, I was aware of devotions like the Novena being attributed back to um, Mary in the upper room and praying for nine days for the Holy Spirit to come. But um, even things like uh, holy medallions, you know, we often think like, hey, the oldest holy medallion is the um, the one of St. Benedict, uh, two-sided, formed in the 14th century. But actually, they found in the catacombs of Domitilla and other locations around Rome in the ancient world, really, um, that the ancient Christians would take the images of either the Caesars, which were like godmen, or medallions with uh, the images of a pagan god on it, and they would re-stamp them in secrecy and carry those around. You know, the ancient pagans, they would have amulets, amulets and trinkets, and they would hang these around their neck, and they were kind of like good luck charms, but they were also, for them, you know, very important religious imagery. And Christians needed that too, especially when we're converting um, these pagan religions. We can baptize things like that, and um, there's nothing wrong with putting an image of our saint or somebody that we want to be devoted to, or even an image of Christ on a on a coin. So they did that. That was that dates back to the as early as possibly the second century, but definitely scholars, most scholars are in agreement that that goes back to the third century. It's just fascinating. We we think that that's some sort of modern thing, like a miraculous medal, but we've been doing that for a while. Yeah, it's also interesting when it comes to kind of these things of antiquity back, you know, in the early centuries of the church that even, for example, the Subtuum Presidium is the oldest prayer to the Blessed Virgin found on, you know, an old papyrus piece of paper and and uh, how mm-hmm. they were able to trace that. And, and to, just to see that devotion to Our Lady, who has lots of sacramentals, is so ancient within the Church. Of course, you know, even you could say it's biblical, the fact that John was devoted to Our Lady, that John took Mary into his home, that there is a sense of devotion even in the Scriptures. But then just to see how it was handed on, even in the first century, with Justin Martyr and Irenaeus and Tertullian writing about the New Eve. And, and then, like mm-hmm. I said, the, this ancient prayer of the Subtuum uh, just fortifies our, our devotion to the Blessed Virgin. Amen. Yeah, I love that. And mentioning the catacombs of Domitilla again, I remember I went down there. I had the chance to actually live in Italy for about four years, just a few years back. And we went and saw them, and I will never forget what the image looks like sitting right above um, you know, probably a pretty a pretty rich man's grave <laughs> is a wonderful fresco, early fresco. It's kind of sloppy, of course, but you can easily make out the image of the Blessed Virgin Mary in blue and the four 
evangelists in their typical style, you know, the bull, the eagle, the man, and uh, what's the last one, the the ox. Um, already said that. But the four evangelists giving her devotion, um, I found that to be just uh, amazing. So there are lots of different sacramentals. I know, for example, like the Knights of Columbus, they recommend that all their members carry a rosary in their pocket. Uh, we have the Miraculous Medal, which was actually called the Medal of the Immaculate Conception, given to St. Catherine Labore in that Marian op- apparition. But it takes on the name Miraculous Medal because as soon as the medal was struck and people began to wear it, they experienced very miraculous phenomena. So it took on a right. very new name. So, uh, Yeah, it wasn't what, a marketing campaign. <laughs> yeah, right? So what's the value of sacramentals and maybe just sacramentals in general? Not necessarily a Marian sacramental, but all of the different sacramentals that the Church has. Right. So the the church defines sacramentals as sacred signs that bear resemblance to the sacraments. They signify effects of a spiritual nature that are obtained through the intercession of the church. And there's a there's a lot to unpack there. But we can condense that down to say that sacramentals, first of all, point us to the sacraments. They dispose us to the sacraments to receive that efficacious grace that sanctifies our lives and hopefully one day leads us to heaven. That's a lot to unpack, as you mentioned. And uh, But the sacramentals are aids. They help us, as you just said, to the kingdom of heaven. And uh, they're great holy reminders, as Mother Angelica used to say on the religious catalog when, you know, she was peddling all of these religious sacramentals, right? Like the holy yeah. reminders of the divine and God's presence in our daily life. So I'm going to be doing a YouTube video, and maybe by the time this podcast releases, it'll already have been recorded and I released it. But, you know, kind of I've had this little thought. So uh, two two things happened in my Marian devotion life recently. The scapular that I had been wearing, and I, I believe that scapular must have been seven, ten years old. Like, it, it, And it was just one of those cheap scapulars. That was a buck twenty-five or something at a Catholic sure. goods store. It wasn't like one of the scapulars.com, the most durable scapular or anything like that. But uh, So uh, my scapular broke one day. And then the same day or very close proximity to that, one of my favorite rosaries, and I go to Lourdes, France, uh, you know, on pilgrimage every now and again. And so I, I'm praying I'm praying the rosary, and all of a sudden the beads all fall off the string. The string oh. broke. And, uh, yeah. I, you know, when I was in Lourdes, actually, I bought like five of those rosaries because I just love praying on that type of rosary for whatever reason. And uh, so, so basically all of these sacramentals, they fell apart in my life. <laughs> and so it's like, what happens when your marrying devotion falls apart? Well, I went to a shrine nearby the shrine and champion wisconsin to the marian apparition i bought a new scapular you know i i I went in a a box of rosaries from travels or whatever and i pulled out a new rosary to pray with so i found new sacramentals but what do we do with these sacramentals that we receive that we have that we make use of and then you know they do break what do we do with the broken scapular or the broken rosary 
that might be the most important question of all, uh, not just for, because we all, we all want to appreciate our religious articles, but taking care of them and having the right custodianship over them is so vastly important. Father, just, I know you know, but for the listener's attention, this is because like the definition says, the church intercedes over these things in order for them to have an effect that might affect our lives and point us to the sacraments. So we don't take them lightly. And I definitely understand what you mean. I mean, maybe even more so not to one up your father, but I've got six kids and these kids have definitely broken a few rosaries or maybe even <laughs> broken off, a, you know, the piece of the piece of Christ, uh, the, the molded piece of Christ off of a crucifix or something, or maybe even um, thrown away a medal or two on accident once. So I definitely get it. Uh, it's not the time to scold the kids. It's the time to catechism, catechize them for that, especially my daughter, who I tell you what, we had to buy one of those roser. We had to buy one of those rubber ones. Um, for her just so she could uh, stop breaking it. <laughs> um, but there is a proper way that the church asks us to to dispose of these, or or let's just say, like, there's there, there are probably three ways for us to handle a situation where something is either damaged or completely broken, or maybe even, let's say, desecrated. So um, let's say that we find a rosary. We know that it's been in the wrong hands, maybe used for a, a really illicit purpose. Um, we can ask a priest to re-bless that rosary to give it a, a better, you know, to, first of all, if you're depending on the priest, if they're willing to do this, they could even perform some sort of um, basic exorcism with uh, holy water. Uh, but they really want to bless it and reconsecrate it for use, um, just so we make sure that that thing is set aside for the privileges of the faithful. Um, the second way is, of course, to mend it. You know, in the case of a rosary, yes, I've I've fixed a bunch of them. There's almost no end to the kind of fun you can have trying to get those itty bitty little pieces of metal um, to link up and then to to squeeze them tightly to to get the kids to stop breaking them. Um, they can definitely be re remended. Um, maybe in the case of a scapular, what you want to be extra careful while you're you're sewing it, so you can preserve the dignity and the quality of what you're what you're holding. Um, but no matter what, if, if some thing is kind of beyond repair, beyond beyond loss, um, then what you want to do is you want to, the church says that we should dispose of these in a way that uh, equals the dignity of the item and the suggestions that they always make. And this might, this might sound weird to some listeners, but they do, uh, they do recommend burning these sacramentals um, to incinerate them or, or to bury them. Um, other ways that you definitely want to avoid, you don't just want to casually throw them in the garbage. They are not garbage. Um, and you don't want to, you know, uh, just just give them away to any old um, to any old purpose. Uh, so burning, um, remending, burying them in the ground with the soil, or uh, attempting to have them re-blessed would be the ways to to mend those issues. If someone has, let's say, they they did throw it away, maybe they didn't burn it, they didn't see a value in burying it, maybe it was too cumbersome to do so, so maybe it did end up in the landfill. Uh, is, is that something we should bring to the sacrament of reconciliation? I'm not sure that there's the pain of sin uh, attached to those with the requirements of, uh, of, of confession or, or with requirements of venial or mortal sin. You know, I think that the intent there, like you, you mentioned in your specific example, we didn't intend for that to happen, but it wouldn't hurt. I'm, I always advise people, you know, whenever they're trying to overrule their uh, their concupiscence their, or their... Um, their, uh, you know, their conscience, if they have a strong conscience that, you know, causes them to overanalyze their sin um, or potential sin, you know, it doesn't hurt to bring those things to the sacrament of confession, even as a venial sin, or to ask a priest. Um, you maybe think about it a little further. And then, you know, of course, 
give them the consideration that it takes to, you know, have a uh, proper fidelity with safekeeping of those items in the future. One of the things we still hold on to as Catholics, and sometimes there are people that are met with surprise when I say this, but we believe in indulgences still. We have partial indulgences, plenary indulgences for different acts of faith that we do, whether it's praying the rosary, meditating on the scripture, going to adoration, praying the stations, lots of ways that we can obtain indulgences. What are some of the indulgences that are attached to sacramentals? Man, that is a that's a big question, Father. Um, and you, you know, one of the fun things that you're probably aware of, and even if you read about like the Brown Scapular, which I'm sure is the type of scapular that you got there from uh, Champion, Wisconsin, which I'm really jealous. My family's from Wisconsin. I've still not been able to visit the shrine there. Um, but even there, whenever you read about the history historicity of the indulgences attached, the, the church used to assign days. Um, attached to these. So, for example, like if you kiss a devote of uh, an object of devotion, um, you're supposed to receive a, a certain amount of days off of purgatory. Now, the church quit defining that sort of thing, but what they offer is kind of a uh, you know, I'd say a soft reset and a hard reset, <laughs> so to speak, on your, uh, your your guilt attached to uh, attached to temporary punishment here on earth. Um, uh, but, you know, the, the, the types of uh, indulgences are, of course, you know, there is indulgence of, of wearing and being devoted, properly invested in the scapular. Um, there are uh, indulgences attached to um, the devotional act of being on a pilgrimage. There are devotions attached, of course, to novenas. That's a powerful one. Um, and some of these are plenary, which is, like I said, kind of a hard reset so to speak, without getting into the, the doctrinal uh, words there, um, or, a, or a soft reset. Um, of course, wearing and being devoted to religious uh, items like a crucifix, um, those are things that, uh, that the church offers indulgences with. And, and for readers' attention, kind of a call-out that I do in the book, you can't really make an exhaustive list of all of the indulgences, but if anybody's wondering, um, if you re- read the—this is kind of difficult, maybe you could provide a link, Father, uh, with the podcast, but the Enchiridion, that's E-N-C-H, Enchiridion of Indulgences, is the, uh, the overarching document that the church has. That contains the, the qualifications— uh, to gain the indulgence, um, and it also gives the circumstances that they can be given, like visiting the papal basilicas um, within a certain time frame of the year, or or so forth. It's not just as easy as a one of those misnomers, like "Hey, follow the church, follow the Pope on Twitter, and you'll <laughs> receive an indulgence." Yeah. There's, there's real ways that the church asks us to be to 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 really have our hearts and minds set aside for these um, with with great intention, and um, yeah. So I would I would go there, Father. Yeah, and there's really one great indulgence, too, that uh, actually, by the time this releases, already has passed us, uh, but that's praying for the Holy Souls, November 1st to November 8th, by visiting a cemetery and praying, and by doing that pious act of visiting a cemetery and offering a prayer for the Holy Father and professing your faith with the creed, and then you also go to confession, receive the Holy Eucharist. By doing that, you're able to apply that indulgence to one of the holy souls. And and uh, so it's not for yourself. So it's a, a unique indulgence in that a lot of times maybe we try to obtain an indulgence for our own sake. But then maybe, too, uh, these other indulgences, like even the divine mercy, yes, it can be for you. But then also it could be uh, you could say, Lord, I... Give this indulgence to 
my deceased grandmother, may you release her from any punishment due to sin, and may she be with you this day in paradise, or something like right. that. So right. that that's really the purpose of indulgences. It's really to aid right. us, to help us uh, on the journey to heaven. And for, for readers understanding there, too, like the church doesn't, uh, let's say, kind of backdate these. Um, what the church communicates, and this is kind of important, is that we, we must have the intention of receiving the indulgence while performing these acts. Um, so you can't be like, hey, I, uh, I I went to the Vatican one time. I got an indulgence. I'm all good. You, <laughs> it's, it's, a little, it's not complicated, but it involves a little bit more intentionality than that. Yeah, when I lead Stations of the Cross in my parish, which is also an indulgence uh, devotion, I always, mm-hmm. at the very end, we always pray for the intentions of the Holy Father, and then I finish with the Creed of the Apostles' Creed, just as a way for us to satisfy that, and, you know, for, for all these indulgences to be obtained, whether someone, you know, knows it or understands it or not, uh, we're going through this holy action, and, and uh, I, I hope it's uh, efficacious for, for me and for everybody. Right. And, and so kind of on leaning on that a little bit for, for listeners' attention once more, is every indulgence requires, uh, I believe every indulgence, plenary or um, partial, they require the three constants, right? So that would be going to a confession, receiving communion, and praying for the Holy Father's intentions. Um, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, that's, that's valid for that is plenary correct, think, and... Yeah. Right. And, then and they want them to, to have this... people to do that within a certain span of days. Yeah, that's right, like 14 days or something like that. And then you have to have uh, a firm detachment from sin, which is kind of like the ah, murky right. water. Like, <laughs> am I really fully detached? But if it's your intention to be fully attached, d- detached, right? right? So so even yeah. when I go to confession, I pray the act of contrition. I say, I'm going to go and sin no more. Well, probably I'm going to sin, but I'm going to try to do my best to avoid the near right. occasion of sin, as we say. Right. Yeah, we could get into a whole separate podcast on uh, contrition, full contrition and partial. <laughs> uh, one of the sacramentals you bring out in this compendium of sacramentals is holy water. And I actually wrote this very popular article one time for Alatea. Uh, and it was simply because I was stay or you know, I was traveling, sometimes I'm on the speaker circuit. So I was staying at a hotel and it was one of the most oddest experiences, but like I really felt in the hotel room like this oppression that was happening there. And so I, being a priest, I made some holy water and I blessed the hotel room. And so I wrote wrote an article for Alatea on, you know, uh, holy water, blessing a hotel room. And partly because, you know, you don't know what has happened there. So you don't know what sins have taken place. You don't know if someone was murdered there or someone was trafficked there. or So there could be a lot of attachment uh, of demonic activity in this hotel room. And so I kind of wrote a prayer, praying for hotel workers, praying for the deliverance of this room or whatever, dispelling the evil that might be there. Uh, but that was an article that Alate every now and again also reruns. Like, uh, it's one mm-hmm. of their most popular articles, they told me. So, holy water is something, uh, it's a valuable sacramental. And I probably, admittedly, I don't make use of holy water enough in my life. Like, I'm at my parish and I see someone, they, they're like, oh, where's your holy water uh, font or whatever? <laughs> they want to refill their holy water from the dispensary. And I'm like, boy, I wonder when the last time I refilled my holy water was, you know? Right. So so yeah. I, I, I know I don't make use of it as much as I should. 
good. And seeing the faith and devotion of my people, my parishioners, kind of is impressive to me. So what's the value of holy water that you found in your research? Oh, man, where, where do we even begin? It, it means so much, and, and, and you know all this. Um, I mean, you're, you're really inspiring me just to take a quick second. Like, I, I travel quite a bit, too, for my work, um, not on the speaker circuit or anything. Fam- my family life has kept me <laughs> homebound quite a bit, but I am definitely adding home, uh, holy water to my, uh, my packing list from now on. That's a great suggestion. Um, you know, the, the, the number one thing that comes to mind to answer your question is, of course, our baptism. Holy water is there to remind us of the waters that replenish our life and make us new creations in Christ. And of course, there's a million other, not a million, there's a finite amount, but there's probably close to 20 or 25 things. And I've written on it too at Epic Pew um, and probably other places, but definitely within the book on on the, the mental reminders or the importance or the um, the imagery that holy water can give us, you know, crossing the Jordan. Of course, um, Jesus used water and he, he used his own spit and the mixing of mud to, he, to heal the blind man. Um, but all of these prefigurements within the Bible, they, they lead us to baptism, um, if not to other sacramentals or the sacramental truth of these. And, uh, and it points to our deliverance and our rebirth. Yeah, there's, uh, you know, thinking about holy water. Of course, Lourdes water. This is one of those like weird things because you go to Lourdes, you bring, you, you fill up your jar with water, you get the little jars at the stores or whatever. And you're like, well, is this blessed water? Is this holy water? Is this Lourdes water? Like, do it, does a priest need to bless it? Is it blessed by the very fact that St. Bernadette found it? Does a priest pray a blessing over the water? So, but it, it's interesting because you can go to all these different places and, and people want to bring back the water. Go to the Holy Land. You can't right now because of the war that's taking place there, but go in a time of peace or when it's safe to travel. Well, people want to bring back the water from the River Jordan. And as a priest, we've added that to water that was used for baptism. Like that meant something to people. Mm-hmm. They go to different shrines, even, you know, again, mentioning Champion, Wisconsin. They sell holy water bottles there. People fill up their holy water bottles in Champion. There's really no difference between their holy water and the holy water at your parish, except maybe they use the old formula before the council and there's threefold exorcisms or whatever. But, but ordinarily, that water is no different than your parish. But there's something about bringing it back from a pilgrimage that people are just naturally drawn to, I found. Right, especially Christians. I mean, I lived in Hawaii whenever I was a kid, and we went to different beaches. And uh, thank thank goodness my parents were in the military, and we had that experience. But one of the ways to remember our time there, of course, is to pick up a little sand from each of the little beaches. Um, So that's fun. But I think as as Christians, of course, we don't want to be tied to just – you know, remembering where we were, but remembering where we're going, and that bap- the baptism waters. Um, these, these are, this is, and I point this out in the book. This is uh, per- pervasious inside every culture, every religion, really, under the face of the sun, um, where water is used to bless things because we all understand the properties of water and how it helps us to be cleansed. It's nourishing, and so forth. Um, you're right, and you know, one thing that I like to Maybe you can help me clarify this too. Here is um, whenever you go to those pilgrimages location. I've not personally been to Lourdes. Been all over Italy and bought holy water. One thing that one thing that comes to mind is I bought my son a little vial of holy water from Saint Anthony's Basilica in Padua, and you know I, I was accused one time of you know simony. Hey, you're not supposed to buy 
um, something like a sacramental that's been blessed. Okay, well, what what I, I believe that the way that we kind of mind our way around this is you pay, paying the value of the vial. You're paying that's the right. value of the object that you're carrying, not for the fact that it's blessed, because that would, of course, be you know using God's things for the profit of man, and that yeah, that wouldn't be okay. Yeah, I think sometimes too we might get a little scrupulous about this because like sometimes I'm at a, a shrine, I'm wearing a collar, and someone's like, "Can you bless these items that I'm buying?" And the the clerk will be very emphatic. You cannot bless these items until she's run her credit card through the machine because she can't buy blessed items. I'm like, well, her intention is to have a blessed item. Her intention is to pay for it. So, so like right. to pay for the item, it's blessed. So sometimes I think maybe we we could be a little over overly scrupulous. But you're exactly right there. You know, if you're getting uh, a jar of blessed oil for example from right. from Padre Pio or something like that or Saint Andre Bassett you're praying for the jar uh right. and then the blessed oil just happens to be in that jar so uh, just one last thing I, I'd like to mention about Holy Water, just because this is my experience. Maybe uh, you've had a similar experience in your travels and your visits to different religious congregations. You're a lay Dominican. I was trained by Benedictines uh, for a few years mm, at Conception yeah. Abbey in Missouri. And uh, at Conception Abbey and at all Benedictine monasteries, uh, what happens is they pray night prayer. And then mm-hmm. when they process out, the Father Abbot, he blesses mm-hmm. each person with yep. holy water before they go to bed. And I just think that's such right. a beautiful image uh, of yep. a father blessing his sons uh, as they go off uh, for for that night. Uh, you know, we we pray in the liturgy of the hours. You know, um, protect me, Lord, as I stay awake. Watch over me as I sleep. That awake I may keep watch with Christ as sleep, rest in His peace. And so we're praying that. The Lord will be with us during those sleeping hours, and uh, the holy water. That's just a powerful sign to me at that at that Amen. moment of prayer. Amen. Yeah, we we actually have a practice in our house. We were very generously blessed, uh, even as a lay Dominican. I, I I actually have a very close tie to and devotion, really, with uh, the monks of uh, of Saint Benedict in Ner- Nursia. Um, they call it Norcia, so they're the monks of Norcia. Um, but it's, of course, this, of course, this birthplace of Saints Benedict and Scholastica. So it really means something. We would go and I'd stay there with the monks in the refectory. Um, of course, drink a little bit of their world famous beer, um, but really just trying to focus my life spiritually and participate in their prayers. And yeah, you're right. So my sons, they, they went and saw Compline you know, dozen times or so. And we still pray. Um, thank goodness my kids are <laughs> literate and okay to, you know, not just playing video games at night, but participating in Compline. So when we pray Compline, uh, we do take a little bit of salt water. And at the end, just like you mentioned, they're on their knees and we give them a little bit of holy water across the forehead. Sometimes we splash, splash them a little too hard, but uh, send them to bed with a blessing. I want to talk about maybe two other things that I notice in your book that you have written and compiled, The Compendium of Sacramentals. And uh, the first is just about the power of the palm branch. So, of course, this is an image in the scriptures. The martyrs have a palm branch in their hand. We know that on Palm Sunday, palm branches were laid out before Jesus. Ride on Jesus, ride, we sing sometimes, right? So uh, it's an efficacious uh, sacramental. And there's a story that a parishioner told me, uh, one of my former parishioners in a different parish, but essentially their house burnt down. They, they had a fire. 
And the things that were saved were the things that had palm branches behind them. So, you know, people go to Palm Sunday, they get the palm branches. So, you know, maybe she had her wedding picture up on the wall, put the palm branch there. That was not incinerated in the fire. Put a palm branch somewhere else. That was protected from the fire. So so this person really believes in the efficacy of palm branches, always wants them, collects any extra over, you know, from because of her experience. So... Uh, well, what do you do with your palm branches? What What are your recommendations for this sacramental that the church gives away for free every year? Yeah, well, I mean, that's probably one of the only ones that we give away for free other than water, right? Um, first, I want to point the readers to like the historicity here. So what's the significance of palms there? Um, in ancient societies, including that of the Jews, uh, but especially, especially, especially even the Jews' enemies. This, this is true with the Assyrians. This is true with the Romans. Um, palms have always stood to most cultures, especially in Asia Minor and Europe, as a sign of victory. So the Caesars, after a big victory, them and their generals would be adorned in palms, decorating their whole body above their armor. Um, that's really cool. We also find this in the Bible. We find it in the Book of Kings that on the walls of the sides of the inner and outer rooms the with the cherubim, we find palm trees and open flowers to show the victory of God over the enemies. And we find it also uh, similar uh, references to palms in the Maccabees. But of course, we take that as images of, of Christ's victory, Christ over death, Christ over our final enemy, Satan. And so we wave around our palm trees at Easter to say, we have won the battle, uh, just uh, just as those generals did, because we're part of God's army now. So what do I do? Um, I, get, I think, Father, to be honest, uh, a few years ago, maybe, and p- perhaps this is just a, a little bit of a overscrupulosity, but um, I think I stopped making the, the little trinkets and crosses out of them. I don't think that that's disrespectful or anything. In fact, if you want to make an image of a cross, that probably enlightens the, the the importance that I just mentioned about the palm. But we really just appreciate displaying them, you know, as beautiful pieces of, of nature that are, as they were given to us, um, part of that Easter celebration. So we display them through Easter. And then when we're done, we try to make a solemn intention. And this is really cool for listeners, too. If you didn't know, the ashes that come out the next year on ash wednesday they're made with the previous year's palms so we turn them over um as best we can as best we can we can remember if they're still available with the kids and whatnot <laughs> we, we try to turn them over to our priest to use the next year yeah so those are uh, special uh, little ways that we make use of sacramentals in our home and uh speaking of the priest he serves in the church and uh, you have a little section on church bells and, uh, of mm. course, there are lots of different bells that the church uses. For example, we have the consecration bells, so they draw our attention to the fact of the epiclesis, the calling down of the Holy Spirit, and then the elevation of uh, the host and of the chalice. Uh, there's also other bells. You know, I, I know that churches, they sometimes even in their bell tower, they will name their bells, and there's this whole story about church bells. So how are church bells sacramentals? Oh, man, you're making me have, an, have to relearn some of this. Um, I, can, I can try my best here, Father, so bear with me. But uh, they can be found with a lot, a lot of ties with the, the victory that we find with the palms. But really, I think, you know, we're just talking about 
Um, we're talking about percussive instruments here. And so bells have always been used to get our attention, whether it's somebody dying or the noonday Angelus or wedding bells, bells get our attention. So what I like to tell people about the sacrament of bells is they bring us and they point us to the second coming, really the parousia, the second coming of Christ. Be ready at the sound of a bell to, to, to answer and to be called to heaven. Um, that's kind of, that's kind of it in a nutshell. But as you said, you know, especially during the epiclesis, there are different kinds of bells that the church has employed there. Actually, I pointed out the beginning of the, the podcast, you know, what was some of the amazing things that I learned? I figured that bells were kind of like, uh, you know, uh, you know, a late middle ages or maybe even Renaissance invention, but the church has been using bells since the early days of Christianity because bells were special to the, the Jews. So they would adorn the high priest's outfit and his armor and bells, and he would be this beckoning signal um, for everybody present during the sacrifice that something special was going on. We do that at our sacrifice too. So um, I would say they're really there to call attention and, and, and perhaps with the definition we say they point us to the sacraments. Yes, bells are, are, are important to uh, you know, get our attention, but at the, time of, at the time of consecration, at the time of the second coming, we're told the bells will ring. So um, I think that they fill us with a, an amazing amount of imagery that literally calls our attention to those events and the sacraments how'd i do you did great there and you know i think about the the bells as well as just uh you know at, at six o'clock at noon at six they call us to pray as you mentioned for the angelus uh they they summon us to prayer and and then we told them as someone you know in honor of someone's life at the end of the funeral mass maybe we told them if they lived 94 years 94 times and it's always fun to to see in monasteries because actually they ring bells manually there, and so they pull the string. Right. It's not electric, so you actually have a bell ringer. Um, mm -hmm. Here's a cute little story about a bell, and this isn't like a church bell, but in a little town in Spain, there is a little woman. Her name is Paquita, and Paquita walks around the village at 6 o'clock in the evening, and she rings a little bell, and she walks around the town, the town center, up and down the streets, and she's ringing this bell. And the purpose of her ringing the bell is to remind the people to pray for the holy souls in purgatory. And mm. uh, it's a tradition that's been in this mountain town for, for centuries, and it's been handed down generation after generation. So, so not even a church bell, just a little bell that she's walking around ringing, but it's inviting people to prayer. And that's really the purpose of the bell, I think, inviting us to pray and reminding us mm -hmm. to pray. Amen. And it's not true that every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. No, no, probably not. So, But it's a nice little pious uh, <laughs> saying. Uh, just like an angel, your guardian angel will finish your rosary if you fall asleep praying it or something like right, that. So right, right. Probably also not true, but maybe maybe it's true. Who knows? So, maybe a, an angel uses its wings to rush to prayer for you. <laughs> so in your compendium on the sacramentals, you talk about sacramental gestures, sacramental signs. So we've talked a little about that. Also, sacramental devotions and the different prayers that we pray. Is there anything else about sacramentals that you think we should cover? Well, um, of course, there are sacramental exorcisms. Every exorcism is a sacramental. 
Um, we don't think that we see them a lot, but we actually see them every time we're baptized. Um, you said you uh, you have a uh, connection to and were um, spiritually raised by the Benedictines, and you know very well that they have a special blessing for their medals that involves holy water and three exorcisms. Of course, if you were, uh, if, if readers have or listeners have ever been to a extraordinary form uh, baptism, they will see three exorcisms there which is super cool um but maybe you could you could give us any uh tantalizing thoughts too but i, I try to tell readers you know they 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 see them more than that than they think and they actually still are a part of the church's regular practice yeah, that is a great reminder. So exorcisms do take place quite a bit, and uh, it's interesting. I'm just going to share a little tangential story here, but I was in a parish. I was the assistant parochial vicar, right, at this parish, and uh, for whatever reason, they had modified the exorcism prayer uh, after baptism or during baptism. And, you know, the prayer says something about forgive the original sin, and they omitted that phrase and rewrote it to be something more flowery. And I'm like, do we not believe in original sin? Like, how have we rewritten a prayer that is in the sacramental books? It just dumbfounded me, baffled me. Uh, and yeah, I was going to make a big deal about it. And then I chose like, oh, I guess you got to pick your battles. And instead, I just right. decided I'm going to just say, forgive the original sin, I'm going to omit their flowery language and put back from memory uh, the right language, not tell anybody, and so all will be well. So so that's one little thought about exorcisms. Uh, a few others, uh, of course, there's all these movies. Um, I, I remember watching The Exorcism of Emily Rose. That was like the first exorcism movie I watched, and I think that this whole idea of good versus evil, especially when it comes to exorcisms, well, this can convict us of truth and of God's existence. Like, if we believe in an exorcism, well, that means God exists. And that if evil exists, well, God is waging battle against evil. So so I think sometimes, like, you know, our obsession with exorcisms it's just saying, like, we have a thirst for the supernatural, whether we're willing to admit it or not. Then I have this third take on exorcisms myself, and uh, and it's uh, when it comes to the baptism exorcism, because you have to be, uh, in order to do an exorcism, right, like, you have to be trained, you have to be a priest. So sometimes I really struggle because we allow deacons to do exorcisms. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I, I don't know if anyone has ever written about this, but in my head, I've always wondered, like, if an exorcism is reserved to a priest, how does a deacon have the permission to do an exorcism during a baptism? So so this is just, like, me conjecturing, me theologizing without knowing the answer, and uh, maybe there's a resolution that some sacramental theologian has already offered, which I, I would love to know. But uh, those are just a, a few things when it comes to exorcisms. But every priest isn't an exorcist in terms of, like, casting out a demon— but every priest is an exorcist sacramentally, as you mentioned, or uh, through through baptism, uh, by celebrating it or by exercising the medals or whatever. So, so yeah, just a, a few different random thoughts, I guess, about exorcisms there for you. 
No, I, I think that that's great. Um, I'm thinking of a few different resources that might be helpful to readers or, or maybe you and Adam Bly, not that we're pointing out his book here, but Adam Bly, great author, expert on uh, exorcisms and demonology. He just put out a history of exorcism book. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that I'm sure that we can find draw some glean some some facts in there to help us answer those tough questions. Yeah, I would bet that's right. And uh, yeah, I actually had him on uh, on the podcast uh, a year or two ago. I bet uh, we talked about. I think he talked about miracles. He had just written a book on miracles at the time. So so yeah, familiar with the name and his work, and uh, that should be something I should look at just to to maybe get my questions answered uh, that I personally have about exorcisms. Uh, so today yeah. on How They Love Mary, we've been talking about sacramentals, not only the Marian sacramentals, but all the different sacramentals and the sacramental tradition of the church. And uh, Sean McAfee has written Compendium of Sacramentals, and it's uh, really a, a heavy book. It's like a textbook-style book almost. You know, <laughs> It's heavy. It's a coffee table book, right? Like This is a yeah. book you would just keep out, and maybe someone would take a look at it. Um, yeah, very beautifully done. Lots of beautiful holy images. Uh, and you're going to learn a lot if you pick up a compendium of sacramentals. So uh, tell us a little more about the work that you do, Sean. How can people get a copy of the book? Where can they read some of the other stuff you write online? Well, I think the first thing to mention is uh, the one who made this possible. My, my wife gave me the time to do this. So my primary work is, of course, as a father of six. And uh, sacramentals, as we've mentioned a few times here, is, yeah, that's just imbued in our daily life. Um, I edit weekly and i write for the uh, epicpew.com that site is almost 10 years old now uh, one year from now it'll turn 10 i'm just so grateful for that sophia press runs that site but i edit and uh and write there too i also write at the national catholic register although i spend most of my time trying to com uh, compile books like this now um, you can find this work and other works of mine of course at amazon or barnes and noble but here's what i always tell readers please go to your local catholic bookstore you know the small businesses are the backbone of the american economy um but also that feeds and uh, provides for many, many Catholic families. So please go to your local Catholic bookstore and ask for books by Sean McAfee. And uh, not only do you appear as a guest to talk about these books uh, on different podcasts like this one, but sometimes you make an appearance with Taylor Schroll on his podcast, Forte Catholic, and, and I tend to be an avid listener of Forte Catholic. Sometimes I don't make it through all the episode. Like, my whole life has changed recently. I went to a, a new parish assigned there, and I spent a lot less time in my car, and so there's a lot less time for podcasts uh, now. But... Uh, but I, I heard an episode that you were on just a few weeks ago, so so you're also appearing there as well. Thank you. Yep, Taylor's a great guy, a very fun and engaging uh, podcast he has there. Well, I'd like to thank you for taking time out of your busy day as a father and all the other work that you do to join me to share about sacramentals uh, with our audience here on how they love Mary and that we can continue to fall in love with the different sacramentals that are helping us on our way to heaven. So thanks so much for being here today, Sean. Thank you so much, Father, and God bless.